First Timothy chapter three. First Timothy three sixteen. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. I want to begin, actually, he wouldn't want me to do this, but i, I got to give a nod, a, a, an appreciation to Mark Harris. We spent some time this last week sharing and talking, and, and we have over the years. Mark is, is a dear friend. Uh, in fact, I'm not even sure that, that this fellowship would be here if not for God speaking through Mark, because, well, it was just kind of underscored what God was doing at the time. And so such a blessing to me over the years, and we've had great conversations. And, and a lot of what we'll talk about this morning uh, drew out of several of those conversations. But Mark and I were talking, and his interest in in what I'm about to share was sparked over 11 years ago. In the spring of 2006, I believe it was, by a visit to a city of ruins. And I was there with him. In fact, our entire tour group was there standing together in a city that was not on the planned tour to Israel, but we had some extra time, and our guide at the time said, hey, would you like to go see this? So we said, sure, show us. And we landed in the city of Sephoris. Sephoris, Josephus called it the Jewel of the Galilee. It rests about three miles northwest of Nazareth, and while Nazareth would be a backwater, podunk little village, Sephoris was a great city in the Galilee, resting in the quiet hills of the lower Galilee above the Jezreel Valley, probably named for Moses' wife Zipporah, that's that's the Hebrew word Sephoris, Zipporah, meaning little bird. But this little bird was quite a city and a lot of commerce and a lot of what took place in northern Israel went right in and out and through Sephoris. In fact, it's likely that Jesus did carpentry or stonemasonry work there in Sephoris because it was so close to Nazareth that a lot of work would take place there. But we stood there in the ruins of a synagogue ogling the beautiful mosaic tile work on the floor. I tiled the bathrooms in my house when we built. I could barely get those pieces of tile straight. They've got these tiny little, intricate, amazing, beautiful artwork. There in the synagogue, as you come in the door, the very first thing you see is the visitation of the Lord to Abraham and to Sarah. The binding of Isaac is there as well. There are images of showbread. A basket of first fruits is on the floor there. In addition, there's a seven-branched menorah, the lampstand from the temple, recognizing that. There's even a a semblance of Aaron as high priest preparing to offer sacrifices of oil and flour and a bull and a lamb. But the most unusual mosaic sits right in the middle of the synagogue floor, the Maserot. The Maserot. What is that and why would that be so weird? We would say the Zodiac. And for that to sit in the middle of a Jewish synagogue is just odd. Why would the Jewish people have a a zodiac? And then, of course, our our tour guide explained, well, that's the Maserot. The word is used in the Bible just one time in all of the scriptures. And that is what I believe to be the oldest book in the biblical library, which is the book of Job. And in Job 38, verse 31, the Lord is speaking. He says, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords or the belt of Orion? 
Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Did you hear it? Constellation. The word constellation is Maserot. The Yiddish word for astrology, I may have shared this with you recently, but it's Mazalot. Mazalot is where we get the phrase, or they get the phrase, Mazel Tov, which is how you would say, you know, good luck, or literally good constellations. So if you hear someone say Mazel Tov, that's what they're saying. They're referring to Mazalot, which comes from the Mazarot, which is the constellations. Now, I want to be very clear, because we're going to talk a bit about the stars this morning, but we are not into astrology here at the bridge. And that is not what this is about. I do not believe, nor does the Bible teach, that stars can predict our fate. Nor do the stars foretell our fortunes or determine our futures. And if you're into a horoscope, please stop it. (laughs) Because it's silliness. And it's not grounded in truth. In a railing rebuke of the daughter of Babylon, the prophet Isaiah wrote, Isaiah 47, 13, You are wearied by your many counsels. Let now the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars, those who predict by the new moons, stand up and save you from what will come upon you. Behold, they have become like stubble. Fire burns them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There will be no coal to warm by, nor fire to sit before. I love Bible prophecy. But brothers and sisters, speaking plainly this morning, there is a prophetic hysteria that is going on right now in the church. I'm not saying we shouldn't be excited about the second coming of Jesus. I am. I hope that's obvious. I mean, if you've missed that... That I can't wait for Him to come. I want to be in His presence. I look forward to the moment He calls us up and we go home. And we have spent many, many teachings talking about that over the years here at the bridge. And yet, there is something that the British have on us that I think is wise. Keep calm and carry on. But in the church today, and in the world today, in fact, even if you opened up to the news this morning, maybe you saw a headline, something to the effect of, Christian doomsdayers expect the end of the world this week. And and what's sad to me is that the world is going to come with its mocking. You know, the Bible tells that mockers will come with their mocking saying, you know, what is the sign of His coming? Come on, it's just rolling on like it always has and it always will. The world is ready to mock. And I don't really like giving them fodder for the mocking. They have enough. Christian doomsdayers. Are you a Christian doomsdayer? I hope I'm not. You know, even in talking about the coming of Jesus and looking forward to the church being called up, man, I am not looking forward to this world going into tribulation. I don't plan to be here when that happens. We have talked about the reality of a worldwide tribulation that the Bible talks about. I'm not excited about that for this world. I'm not looking forward to the time when this world finally gets its comeuppance. Man, take them down, God. Show them what's for. Come on. If the goal of our instruction is love, then as we have been talking about in here, you and I are literally caught in that divine tension between longing to be with Him and loving a very lost world. And so we don't get excited about doomsday prophecies and things going awry for the world. In fact, if we were really to believe that this is the last week, then we ought to be out at every door of every neighbor speaking the gospel nonstop. 
rather than holing up on a mountain somewhere. We don't want to just be people who are seeing stars. However, God did make the sun and He made the moon and the stars for a reason. And I do want to talk about some things. Some things that some Christians are getting a little hysterical about and yet there is something interesting in them. And that's what we're going to begin by looking at this morning. Turn in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 1. I'd tell you where that is, but come on. Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. The Lord is in the midst of creating the world. And He says in verse 14, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also and God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Interesting. I want you to hone in on two words this morning there in verse 14. And the two words are seasons and signs. Seasons and signs. We begin with seasons. Let them be, he says, for seasons, for signs and seasons and days and years. So I want to begin with seasons. The word for seasons in the Hebrew is moadim. Moadim, M-O-A-D-I-M, if you want to Englishize it there. Moadim, which literally is translated appointed times. We say the seasons. The Bible says appointed times. Well, of course it is. Right now it's September. On, on the calendar, it's kind of appointed. We're back to September. October is coming. When we look at the calendar, we understand there are appointed times that come around every year. We can call them seasons. There's the Jewish calendar, which is based on the lunar year. And there's a Gregorian calendar based on the solar. And so we have seasons, appointed times. Jewish people will say, Moadim Lashim Shah. Moadim Lashim Simcha, really would be a better way of Simcha. Let's practice that together. Moadim Lashimcha. It means happy holidays. So whenever the Jewish people have a feast or a festival or happy holidays, they say, Moedim l'shimcha. And that's what that means. Moedim. Moedim. The appointed times. So I want to talk about, we have two main areas we're going to look at this morning. First is the Moedim, the seasons, and then the Maserot, the constellations. First, the Moedim. These are Hebrew paradigms. Okay, Hebrew ways of thinking, ways of perceiving the world, biblical ways of looking at the world around us, and the signs and the seasons. They are not meant to be mystical or secretive. We're not here this morning disclosing something that is yet to be heard. Okay, I'm not giving you anything that's new information. We have had this for centuries. But we begin with the appointed times, the Moedim, and I want you now to turn forward a few books to Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 23. Leviticus 23. This is a place to go if you want to get onto the Jewish lunar calendar and understand the appointed times of the Lord, the Moedim. There are seven of them. Seven feasts. 
seven celebrations. Don't tell me that the Lord doesn't want to celebrate or that the Lord isn't into joy because he prescribed seven holidays through the Jewish year that were to be celebrated and enjoyed by the people of Israel. Three of those, he required all male Jews to come down to Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem every year. So the seven feasts, four of them happen in the spring, three of them happen in the fall. Track this through with me. In Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times, the Lord's moedim. The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. And then he begins with Shabbat. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It's a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. That's a separate weekly time of rest, Shabbat, the Sabbath. Still kept by the Jews today, and you Bible students know, Jewish people will say, the Jews didn't keep the Sabbath, the Sabbath kept the Jews. The Lord was the first one to prescribe a day of rest every week. Other nations didn't do that. God said, I want you to take a day off. I want you to be at peace. I want you to be in my presence and rest and consider me. And take that day every week. But then he goes on with the seven appointed times of the Lord. And the first one is in the first month. Look at verse 4. These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. The first month begins in the springtime, not in the fall. In fact, you know about Rosh Hashanah, which I'll come back to in just a minute, is the Jewish New Year, which happens in Tishri. That's the civic calendar. It's the secular calendar. And God said, no, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to begin on Nisan. And we begin with a holy calendar. And there's a reason, I believe, why God did that. We're going to start right here. Because that's where it all really begins. What do you mean? It really begins with Passover. The hope of the world begins with Passover. First, it was the hope of Israel. I will pass over you and your children. That meant, you know, he was going to pass over them and not the firstborn of Egypt. And he was going to rescue his people, deliver them out. And so Passover is such, even today, a remembrance of that. The hope of Israel for their deliverance from Egypt. And yet it is the hope of the world because of what took place on Passover. So again, Nisan, the 14th, is the date of Passover. The 14th day of the first month, verse 5 tells us, Passover. That's the first of the, of the spring feasts. Secondly, on the very next day, if you look at verse uh, 6, then on the 15th day of the same month, there is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. So Passover kicks off on the 14th, and then on the 15th, Hag Hamatzot which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Pesach is Passover in the Hebrew. Hag Hamatzot, Unleavened Bread. And then on the very next day, verse 10 tells us, Speak to the sons of Israel. When you enter the land, I am going to give you and reap its harvest. Then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. That would happen on Nisan the 16th. So you get it? Passover on the 14th. Hag Hamatzot, unleavened bread, begins on the 15th, and then first fruits, or reshit in the Hebrew, begins on that uh, 16th of Nisan. 
And then 50 days later, the next feast would take place. Skip down to verse 15. You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. That is now in the month of Sivan. On the sixth day of Sivan, still in the springtime, Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, because it happens 50 days later, seven weeks later, and that is Shavuot. You know the Greek word Pentecost. Those are all the spring feasts, all four happening in the spring. And then we shift around all the way around to the fall months, to the month of Tishri. To the first day of the month of Tishri, if you go down to verse 24. Speak to the sons of Israel again, saying, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by blowing. Blowing what? The shofar. A holy convocation, you shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord, and that is Yom Teruah. The Jews call it today Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah means the head of the year. It's the Jewish New Year, and they celebrate it as the Jewish New Year, but it's really not a new year, it's the old year. It's the end of the year, as we're coming around, it's in the seventh month of the year, according to the Lord God. So on Tishri the first, there is a blowing of trumpets. How do they know when to blow? Well, they wait for the first sighting of the new moon. And the moment that the new moon is sighted, it's not the full moon, it's the new moon. And when the new moon begins to be seen, you see just the sliver, that's when the month has begun, that's when the trumpet is blown. So you really don't know the day or the hour. Okay, Tishri the first, Yom Teruah. Then ten days go by. And during that ten days, the Jews call them Yamim Noraim, the days of awe. Because from the blowing of the trumpet, across those ten days, it is a time in Israel of repentance. It is a time of serious, even today, reflection. It is time where Jewish people, rather than being able to sacrifice because there is no temple, they do all kinds of good deeds. It's the time for trying to make up for the mess of the previous year. The awesome days. Throughout that time, through those ten days, the Jews will come to each other and say to one another, May your name be written down in the book by the end of the awesome days. And then on the tenth day, which is Tishri the tenth, verse 26, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, On exactly the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. Yom Kippur. The most serious of all the Jewish feasts or festivals Yom Kippur, that day one time a year when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of sacrifice there before the Ark of the Covenant. Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, Tishri the Tenth. And then that same month, note this all happens in one month by the way. Yom Teruah kicks off the month. The awesome days follow. Yom Kippur on the tenth of the month. And then on the fifteenth, verse uh, 33, skip down to verse 33. 
Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel on the 15th of this seventh month is the feast of booths or tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. And that is a glorious feast. It is a feast of it's one big Israeli camp out. Okay, the Jewish people set up these little tabernacles. They actually move into them. If they've got a backyard there in Israel, they'll go out into the backyard and they'll pitch kind of a tabernacle and they'll eat their meals out there and the kids will sleep out there. And It's, it's just a joyous time. So all of those happen then in the fall. Four feasts in the spring, three feasts in the fall, seven feasts in all. But Yom Teruah, the day of trumpets, is right now the current date of high interest and for some high anxiety. (laughs) Mark 13.32 tells us, But of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Note that. As I said, because the shofar on Yom Teruah is blown at the first sighting of the new moon, we don't know the day or the hour. However, Jesus takes it a step further and says, listen, the implication is bigger than just tying it to a feast. The reality is, and you must understand, that the Father alone knows. Jesus said the angels don't know. The Son doesn't even know. Now, I have my suspicion that Jesus didn't know when He was on the earth, but He knows now. But only the Father knows. What are you saying? I am saying, I believe we are patently wrong to presume to ever set dates. I think we are equally wrong to set locations as to this is the place where it's going to happen. The Bible is clear that those who are going to be caught up will be caught up wherever they are, whatever they're doing. And it has nothing to do with a place And as far as the time goes, that's God's prerogative. And I'm okay with that. And I hope you are as well, that we are not to presume at the moment or the time or the place. We are to be ready. I've told you before, for 2,000 years the church has been called to live ready. That the Apostle Paul lived his life ready. That there in the first century, he was calling on the new churches and the fledgling believers. Man, live ready. Every day could be the day. Be prepared. Be sober. Be alert. Always. Not just on this particular day that you think you figured out based on star patterns or numerology or anything else that people base things on today. But we don't listen to that. And throughout the centuries, there have been the date setters. There have been those who have come along and said, it's going to be now, and here's the deal, and here's why. And they get all wrapped up and excited, and they gather usually a following with them to enjoy this time of this date when they're going to be caught up. I I recall a date, I mean, not personally, I wasn't here, but October 22nd, 1844. Anyone hear of that date? October 22nd, that's my wife's birthday, not 1844. (laughs) But October 22nd, A man by the name of William Miller. He was a Baptist preacher. William Miller was was very interested in the end times and the rapture of the church and when all these things were going to take place. And the danger with that is if you don't couch all of your study of the end times in Scripture, you can get off. William Miller became convinced that October 22, 1844 was the day. A huge following. They were called Millerites. In America at the time. People were aware of them. 
And, and they got excited about this and they all gathered together for the great day of their calling up. And the day went by and the next day... And that moment, October 22nd, 1844, became known as the Great Disappointment. A man by the name of Henry Emmons later wrote, I waited all Tuesday, October 22nd, and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday and was well in body as I ever was, but after 12 o'clock I began to feel faint. And before dark, I needed someone to help me up to my chamber as my natural strength was leaving me very fast. I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, but sick with disappointment. Foolishness and false prophecy often disappoint. But the Bible tells us, Romans 5, verse 5, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Hope in Jesus never disappoints. You can be excited for an event, for the day to come. I am. And that hope will never be disappointed. But to tag a specific time or place or or moment is a setup for disappointment. Look at verse 37 of Leviticus 23. These are the appointed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, to present offerings by fire to the Lord, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings. Each day's matter on its own day, besides those of the Sabbaths of the Lord, and besides your gifts, and besides all your votive and free will offerings, which the Lord's saying, hey, you can come up to temple anytime you want. You know, the doors are open. Come and sacrifice. Come and celebrate. Come by free will. To enjoy the presence of the Lord, but at least seven times a year. Let's, let's, let's be real. We need some fellowship here, right? And then down at the end, verse 44 of Leviticus 23, so Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. And that's the Moedim. The appointed times. What's compelling to me about the fall feasts is that the spring feasts have all been fulfilled in Jesus. Literally. The spring feast, because they're at the beginning of the year, right? Nisan starts the year as far as the Lord is concerned, and the year begins, hope begins with Passover, the crucifixion. Jesus was crucified as our Passover lamb. Paul calls him Christ, our Passover. His death happened on Passover. His burial then happened the next day, or or that day, and into unleavened bread, Jesus is in the grave. And then the resurrection happened on the day of first fruits. Paul calls Jesus Christ the first fruits. He's the one resurrected on that day. Fifty days later, you know what happened. Fifty Penta, Pentecost, Shavuot, and on that feast, the church was born. The Holy Spirit was poured out. That is the feast of the wheat harvest. Which is really interesting because when Jesus talks about the kingdom, He he compares it to to wheat. To the wheat and the tares. Right? And so on the day of the wheat harvest, the church is born. And there's so many things biblically we could talk about with that. But this morning, all I want you to note is that all four of the spring feasts you can see as literally fulfilled in the work of Jesus in His first coming. And then we make our way around to the seventh month. And in the seventh month, you have the day of the trumpet. 
which sounds a lot like the rapture of the church when the last trumpet sounds. And the dead in Christ are rising and we who are alive, we go with them. We meet Jesus in the air, the day of the trumpet. And then the awesome days leading up to the day of atonement sounds an awful lot like how the Bible describes the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation. And then thirdly, you see the millennial kingdom. In what? In Sukkot, the the Feast of Tabernacles, which Zechariah 14 says we will celebrate in the Millennial Kingdom. In fact, Tabernacles is connected to the Millennial Kingdom. So it's so interesting to me that these events, these prophetic events that are biblical and talked about, that is the rapture, the tribulation, followed then by the second coming in the Millennial Kingdom and the rule and reign of King Jesus, these things have not happened yet. And so I wonder about the fall feast. And it's why every fall as it comes around, I wonder, is he going to do the same kind of fulfillment in these feasts that he did in the spring? Now notice in the spring, the four feasts were fulfilled one after another in that same year. Which would be impossible for the fall feast because if you have the day of the trumpet and then ten days later you have Yom Kippur, well, it wouldn't see it, the numbers don't really work out because the rapture of the church happens, and then you have a seven-year tribulation, and then the coming of Jesus, and then the millennial kingdom. But the pattern still could be there. Could be. I don't know for sure, but I do know that those end-time events have yet to be fulfilled, and so we're waiting and we're watching. Some are saying this is the week. This is when it all begins. This is when it comes down. Hey, September 20th, Wednesday, or September 20th, we don't know the day or the hour, but it's Yom Teruah. And so we're going to celebrate here, again, Yom Teruah on Wednesday evening. That is Tishri the first on the Jewish calendar, thinking in terms of the Moedim. Tishri the first, Yom Teruah on September 20th into 21st. Some are looking at Saturday, next Saturday, September 23rd, to be the date of the rapture. And that is Tishri the third on the Jewish calendar. Again, not date setting here. If any of you go out of here and you say, Pastor Rick said, I will deny it all the way to heaven. Okay? Why Saturday? I mean, wait a minute. Now I'm messed up because you got the Moedim and there's something compelling about those, those spring feasts being fulfilled and then the fall feasts unfulfilled in terms of the second coming and people kind of look that way and think that way. And yet, Day of Trumpets is Tishri the first. But people are all excited about Saturday, September 23rd, which is Tishri the third. It is not the Day of Trumpets. Why that day? Why that particular Saturday? Well, here's where we get into the stars. Because a peculiar sign will appear in the heavens. Perhaps some of you have seen this on YouTube or you've Googled this or looked it up. This sign will appear directly over Jerusalem on Saturday. But let's back up a bit. The Bible says again, Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, let them be for signs and for seasons. So we've talked a little bit about the seasons, the Moedim. Let's look now at the signs. The signs. The, the word signs there in Genesis 1.14 is ot, which is where we get the word maserot. Okay, ot is simply a sign, it's a non-verbal signal or symbol 
that has meaning to it. Maseroth is the appointed distinctive sign. Maseroth being translated, again in Job 38, the constellations. Oath is simply a sign, but it's a sign with meaning. It's a nonverbal. You look at it, and like you see a stop sign, that's an oath. And you realize that's a stop sign. And sometimes if you've driven right through the stop sign and not stop, you say, (laughs) The sign, the odd. So let's look at the Maserot, the appointed signs. Turn in your Bibles now to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. For reasons I don't have time to go into this morning, this psalm is very precious to me. Uh, this is a very important psalm to me. This is a psalm that, that the Lord used to get my attention and, and explain to me what, what I needed to be doing uh, with, my, with my days. But Psalm 19, verse 1, begins, The heavens are telling of the glory of God. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. That would be the constellations, the Maseroth. Is there something there? He goes on and says, And their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. And then He clarifies, There is no speech, um, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Verse 4 Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. How can there be no voice, no speech, but there's an utterance going out? It's the oat, the maserol. There's a sign. It's speaking without speaking. There's something we see. And in seeing these things, we look at the heavens and they declare the glory of God. In them, he says in verse 4, he has placed a tent For the sun, which is an interesting phrase, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, it rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Note that word course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. Now stop right there. The heavens are declaring without speech. The glory of God. Now, very simply and a little more vaguely, you can look up at a starry night and just say, wow, praise the Lord. You can watch the cycle of of sun. Now, you know that we actually orbit the sun, but still we see the rising and the setting is how the sun looks to us as it comes and goes. And we can see the moon following in that orbit and we just say, wow, praise the Lord. Sun and moon and stars. Praise the Lord. Yes, the heavens declare our Creator God. No question about that. But is there more? Is there more to this declaration, this this unheard speech, these appointed signs, the Maserot? Interesting that the Apostle Paul brings out in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, he says, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word Christ. Excuse me. But I say, he says, surely they have never heard. Have they? Talking about Israel. And then he says, indeed they have. And he quotes Psalm 19. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Paul claims 
by quoting Psalm 19 that the Jews should have or at least could have seen the sign of Messiah's coming. The declaration of what? Of, of Jesus. How can faith come? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Well, how could the Jewish people possibly heard or known that Jesus was coming? And we could say, well, the Bible gave indication of that. The prophecies talk of that, speak of that, and they do. But Paul doesn't quote that part of Psalm 19. He quotes the heavenly part. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. What voice? What words? And I would suggest to you, perhaps, the Maserot. The constellations. The reason why the constellations, 12 of them, are depicted on the floor of the synagogue in Sephora. What do you mean? Well, Numbers 24.17 gives us this little clue, this little insight. That spurious seer, that false prophet, if you will, who came out and he spoke prophetic truth because he couldn't help himself. Numbers 24.17 I see Him, but not now. I behold Him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. That's Balaam, that old prophet. Balaam who was in it for the money. And the Lord allowed him to prophesy, but he was supposed to be cursing Israel. Every time he opened his mouth, he couldn't curse Israel. All he could do was bless them. And part of the blessing was, I see a star. A star shall come forth from Jacob. And that's an early prophecy of the birth of Jesus. Now, note this in Psalm 19. The first half of Psalm 19 deals with what we would call ecliptic constellations. Ecliptic. I'll explain what that is in just a minute. But what's the second half of Psalm 19 all about? Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Law, testimony, precepts, commandments, fear of the Lord, and judgments, all synonymous of the Word of God. All speaking of the Word of God, which is more desirable, verse 10, than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter than also honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, note this, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Do you see what he's just done? In Psalm 19, David declares, hey, the constellations have something to say. The constellations indicate to us something that's coming, something that's happening. But if you want to really understand, if you want to go from simple to wise, you do so by the Word of God. The Word then brings that full revelation, that full understanding. I don't always understand what's going on in the sun and the moon and the planets and the stars. But I'll tell you something. I always can rest assured in God's plan by God's Word. I can be comforted and encouraged, convicted and exhorted. The Word of God does what the planets cannot do, though the planets do give indications, though the stars do show us some things. Are you resting assured in the Word of God? Do you know what the Word says about what's coming, about what's happening, rather than what that great bastion of truth YouTube tells you? 
Hey, Google is fine. YouTube is great. The internet for all kinds of information. But be careful because there's so much out there that's just completely bogus. Sounds good. Quotes scripture even. But doesn't give the full picture. Now, the Maserot specifically describes the Maserot. It's the ecliptic constellations. I used that word before. Here's what it means. That is the 12 constellations of the stars that are visible in the orbit of the sun. We might say they follow in the path of the sun. Uh, Job chapter 9, verse 9, Who makes the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south? The chambers implies these, these chambers of the sun. These are the constellations that follow in that, in that pattern. Psalm 19, again, verse 4, I said pay attention to that. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. A tabernacle for the sun. So there are constellations all over the heavens, and yet there are certain constellations, and they're the ones that we tend to see in the stars because they're following in the tent of the sun, in that ecliptic pattern of the sun. It's simply because of where the stars and the planets are aligned in our solar system. And by the way, a system that is aligned with perfect precision. It's just amazing how things like this happen by accident, you know? It, it, it truly it blows my mind that people can look at the intricacy of the universe and think that it all happened by an explosion and it's all random events. If it was random, we would have been blown away long ago. But everything happens in its season and in its due course as designed by our Creator God. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, which we're going to come back to in just a minute... It reveals there's a sign clothed with the sun. What does that mean? In the ecliptic constellation. Clothed with the sun means it's there in that path or that root of the sun. That's what ecliptic means. And actually, as we said, the the earth orbits the sun. So does the moon. So do certain planets. And so do then the constellations or the constellations of the Maserot. Remember the Bible indicates that the heavens non-verbally tell of the glory of God. How does that work? Well, this is interesting. And this is where we step a little bit out and we look up to the stars and just think about these things for a moment. That reading right to left, which is the way you read in the Hebrew, reading right to left, the heavens do in fact non-verbally tell of the glory of God. I'm not going to go into all this this morning, but... The Maserot tells a story, an interesting story, a fascinating story. In fact, the story in the Maserot that will give you the beginning and the end. We'll, go, we'll do chapter 1 and chapter 12 and we're done. Well, not done with my teaching. I'm going to go a lot longer than that. But it begins with a sign that we call Virgo, the Virgin. The Maserot begins with Virgo. The Maserot ends with Leo. The lion. Interesting. Virgo. On the left side, I never thought I'd be talking about stuff like this here, but here we go. On the left side of Virgo is the Alpha Star, the largest star in the Virgo constellation. And that star is called Spica, which means seed. Seed. What's a virgin got a seed for? What's that all about? Genesis 3.15, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, 
He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. God is talking to Satan, lowering a curse and pointing out that a virgin will be with seed. A woman will have, women don't have a seed, women have the egg and the man has the seed. But this woman's gonna have a seed, the Lord proclaimed. And it is what people call the first gospel, the proto-evangelicum. The first time in the Bible that the gospel is indicated is right there as God is cursing the devil. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. The Lord Himself will give you a sign. You want a sign? Here's your sign. (laughs) Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son and she will call His name Emmanuel. A virgin with a seed. So whoever named Virgo and named the Alpha Star of Virgo Spica must have read Isaiah 7.14 because a virgin will have a seed. And it's not just a sign in the stars. Oh no, an actual virgin, you know the story, her name was Mary, actually became pregnant when the Holy Spirit came upon her and the power of God overshadowed her, Luke chapter 1 verse 35, and she gave birth to a boy named Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So Virgo has this bright star called Spica, the seed. By the way, on the other side of Virgo, on the other hip, if you will, straight across from Spica, there's another star that is called Hez, which means the branch. Isaiah 11 verse 1, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Jeremiah 23 verse 5, behold the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Zechariah chapter 6 verse 12, behold a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Branch. You Bible students know Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1. The word branch, a branch from Jesse's roots will bear fruit. That word branch is Netzer, which is the root of the word Nazareth. So a branch, a seed from a virgin. Interesting. And all that's right there in, in Virgo as you look at the stars, just based on those names. But if you go all the way around the Maserot, you come to the very end of that, of that constellational series of the ecliptic constellations and you land at Leo. And it's interesting, the alpha star of Leo is called Regulus, which means the king. We start with a virgin birth and we end with a coming king. See the story? Now if it was just in the stars, I'd say that's interesting, perhaps a bit wonky. But we know the story biblically begins with a virgin birth and will end with the return of the king. That's what the Bible declares. So then I can look at the word of God and I can look at the stars and go, that's pretty, that's truth, right on. It makes sense. Maybe you're sitting there going, what is this, the Bridgetarium? Thanks to computer programs that you can download. In fact, one of them that's that's very useful and interesting, and I've just started playing with it, Mark. It's freaking me out, man. It's called Stellarium. Stellarium Stellarium.org, and it is a computer program where you can go back and forward in history and see star patterns. 
You can pick a date and see what the stars look like right then. And specifically, you can go to this ecliptic, these ecliptic constellations and see exactly what the stars look like, which is why people are so hyped up about September 23rd, because some people have looked ahead to see what the pattern will be on September 23rd. You see, what we know, just scientifically, is that these two constellations, Virgo and Leo, remember Virgo starting the pattern, and Leo ending the pattern, we know that these two constellations are going to rise above Jerusalem on September 23rd. Really? Yeah, they do all the time. Okay. <laughs> so don't freak out. In fact, about every 12 years or so, this, this, this pattern, very similar pattern comes along. But listen, they're going to arc above the sky, directly above Jerusalem, next Saturday, the 23rd. Not setting dates. I'm trying to explain why people are so excited about this. And everybody that's excited about this, buzzed about this, talking about this, takes you right to where we're going to go next. Revelation chapter 12. It's been called the Great Sign Prophecy, the Revelation 12 Prophecy. People talking about this, so let's look at it. Do I need to tell you where Revelation is? Revelation chapter 12. Verse 1. A great sign. A megas simus. (laughs) So... Mega sign. A great sign appeared in heaven. John is speaking. He saw this. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars and she was with child. She cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Now stop right there. A woman clothed with the sun means following the ecliptic path and the Maseroth, you would expect then a woman, Virgo, to be clothed with the sun, to be in the pattern of the sun when this happened or when John saw this. A woman clothed with the sun following the ecliptic path of the Maseroth this Saturday in the skies above Jerusalem. In addition, the nine stars that make up the constellation Leo will be right at her head, right above her. Nine stars. Well, the prophecy says 12. What's interesting is that three planets will be uniquely lined up right coming off of those nine stars. That's Venus, Mars, and Mercury. So you can add three planets and nine stars, 12. So 12 stars above Virgo, clothed with the sun, this Saturday, September 23rd. Now, I do want to point out, it's not 12 stars that crown... Virgo, it's nine stars and three planets. And I have come to know the word to be pretty specific. But we'll, we'll just give it to him for, for a minute. We'll say, okay, well, maybe there's a crown then of what looks like 12 stars, including those three planets. Furthermore, while it is ecliptic, and the new moon will be at her feet. She's got the new moon at her feet. You've got the crown of the 12 stars, and it is in the ecliptic path. If you say clothed by the sun, if you look at the picture of what it looks like on Stellarium.org, what you discover is that the sun kind of clothes Virgo. It's more like a halter top, really. I mean, it's not really... 
we, we would say here on Sunday morning, please go home and come back a little more modest, you know. Because the sun is actually above her uh, left shoulder and not fully clothing her. Although the brightness of the sun, you, know, you can make a case for it. So, okay, we'll, we'll let that ride a little bit. Some point out another interesting curiosity in the stars, and that is since November of 2016, Jupiter, which is the kingmaker planet, Jupiter has spent 41 weeks literally inside the, Vir, the, the womb of Virgo. So if you go back nine months and then you just pattern it through and watch Jupiter, Jupiter enters uh, in November of 2016, enters the womb of the middle of the star pattern we call Virgo, enters in there and then loops around and stays there nine months. And then on September 9th, so it's already happened, Jupiter exited Virgo between the legs as in a birth. Nine and a half months, literally gestation, and then Jupiter gets birthed out of Virgo. Hmm. You look at these things and you go, oh man, what's coming? What's happening? And then someone says, Revelation 12! And you go, yes, the woman appeared in heaven, uh, clothed with the sun, the moon, under her feet, which is there, and the twelve stars. Is that what's going on here? Listen. People will say one of two things right now. They say, number one, that it's the king that is being birthed from the womb of the church, ready to reign. There's a problem with that. The church cannot be the woman. Because the church does not give birth to Jesus. Jesus gives birth to the church. We are born again by the Spirit of the living God through the work, the blood work of Jesus Christ. We find our birth because of Him and never the other way around. John chapter 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Furthermore, if, if, if you say that the woman is the church and that the, you know, Virgo symbolizes the church and Jupiter symbolizes the birth of the king coming out of the church, understand the woman in the prophecy becomes pregnant and gives birth. But the church is the bride. Why is the bride pregnant? The bride shouldn't be pregnant. Right? I mean, doesn't that kind of mess up the picture a little bit? The bride is not yet married to the groom. This would be a birth out of wedlock if you're trying to track this metaphor through. It ruins the metaphor. And Jesus is never called the child of the bride. No, Jesus the King is the bridegroom. So Jupiter can't be a picture of Jesus coming out of the womb of the church. That's a very kind of wonky view. Okay, well there's another view people have. They say, well, the Revelation 12 prophecy is the church being birthed out of the womb, ready to be caught up to the heavens in the rapture. It's a rapture sign, they say. There's a problem with that, folks. The church is not the child. And the context of Revelation 12 is absolutely, unequivocally clear that the church is not the child. Furthermore, as you look at this whole picture of of what's happening on September 23rd, and please understand something, I'm okay with the rapture happening on September 23rd. I have no problem with that. 
And if we are called out next Saturday, praise the Lord, I'm going to have to clean the house. I'm ready any day. I'm just trying to help us understand and see what does the Bible really say, especially when prophecy is spoken, because anytime biblical prophecy is taken by someone and rewritten to conform to something else, we have now stepped into the realm of false prophecy. And the Bible has a few things to say about that. Let's make sure that we're not fudging. And there's a lot of fudging going on in this whole thing. As I've already pointed out a few things, you know, for one thing, it's not on the day of trumpets, so you gotta kinda stretch that out, and, and Jupiter was birthed on the 9th, not on the 23rd, so you gotta kinda say, well, yeah, but that's just indicative of what's coming, and the sun's really not right there, but, but okay, we can allow for that, and it's three planets, not 12 stars, but nine stars and three planets, but, but really that's what it's talking about, and you, I mean, there's enough fudge here to make some Christmas candy. So, Rick, are you saying September 23rd cannot be the day? No, actually, I was hoping it would be this Thursday, the 21st, because that's my birthday, and that'd be a great day to go. (laughs) Or it could be the night before. You know, when we're out out in the park, wouldn't that be great? We're out there, the kids have their little paper shofars, and we go, one, two, three, and we don't even have time to blow because we're gone. (laughs) I'd love it. Wouldn't it be a great time to go? So, so Rick, are you saying really? You think Wednesday or Thursday? No, I'm not saying that. I am not setting dates. Matthew 24:44. You must be ready, Jesus says. Right, Mark? Be ready. That's the whole point. Mark and I spent a couple hours on Tuesday morning going through a lot of these things and looking at some of these star patterns and, and, and he's just done massive research, research on this, much of which I've just ripped off and handed to you this morning, shamelessly. But Mark said at the end of it, we're talking, he goes, you know what it really all means? Be ready. Just be ready. I love it. I agree. Because, because listen, the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. And I'm telling you, this is God's call when all this takes place. Our call is to be biblical, not astrological. Look at the stars. Hey, get Stellarium. It's fascinating. This is God's creative work that you're looking at. Just ascribe Him all the glory and ascribe Him the right to do what He's going to do when He determines to do it and not when we think it's going to happen. So what about Revelation 12? What does it really mean? I mean, do we see anything like the great sign of Revelation 12 anywhere else in all the Bible? Yes, we do. Yes, we do in Genesis 37. You can look there, but I'm just going to roughly give you the story. Genesis 37, verses 9 through 11, Joseph had a dream. You may recall that the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowed down to him. And his father and his brothers were like, (laughs) when they heard about this dream, sun and the moon and eleven stars are bowing down to you, Joseph, (laughs) in your dreams. I mean, dream on, little bro. Just because you got the colorful coat doesn't mean anything. We will never bow down to you. And to make sure of it, they sold him into slavery. Well, he ended up in Egypt. And if you know anything of the story of Joseph, you know it was a series of unfortunate events. (laughs) I mean, there were good things that happened, but then bad. And he lands in prison. It wasn't his fault. He was innocent, but he's in prison. But he gets out. 
And ultimately he ends raised up by the, by the hand of God, the grace of God, and Joseph recognizes it throughout his life. This is God's doing, and it's for God's glory. He gets raised up to second over all Egypt, only to Pharaoh. And at that time... A dream is had by Pharaoh of a famine, a seven-year famine. Joseph interprets the dream. I mean, all of this comes together in this beautiful way. God orchestrating the life of Joseph. Why? So he can save Jacob and the boys. Because the famine hits hard, but Egypt is ready. Canaan is not. And so Jacob sends his 11 sons down to Joseph to see if they can get aid during this time of famine. And Joseph recognizes them. They do not recognize him, but they all bow down before him. Exactly as he dreamed when he was a boy. And ultimately, Jacob and the whole family, 70 strong, would move right down into Egypt and be saved through Joseph and would bow down to him, fulfilling the dream that he had. So we see that in Genesis, again, 37, Joseph's dream. John, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is tapping into this well-known dream. Because what Revelation 12 teaches us, please understand this, it shows us a great panoramic prophecy, not of the church, but of Israel. You know, Israel is Jacob's name. God said, Jacob, your name's not going to be Jacob. He'll catch her any longer. It's going to be Israel, Prince of God. And so the name was changed to Israel. The 11 boys plus Joseph, the 12 tribes of Israel. That's how they ended up in Egypt, by the way. And 400 years later would be delivered from Egypt in the Exodus. And so they're down there, and, and all of this took place. Well, John remembers, John thinks of that, John portrays that. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. The woman, my friends, is not the church. The woman is not Mary. The woman of the prophecy is Israel. How do you know? Well, you read the prophecy. But understand this, J. Vernon McGee says, show me how you identify the woman of of Revelation 12 and I'll show you what you believe. The identification of the woman is absolutely vital and it is not the church and again it is not Mary. The woman in the prophecy of Revelation 12 is Israel. It's not a rapture prophecy for the church as some are trying to make it right now. It's not a mid-tribulation event, as some are saying. Well, chronologically, we're reading through Revelation. Now we're at the midpoint, and so this is happening at the middle of the tribulation. No, this is a panoramic picture. When you study Revelation, if you want to be clear about it, anytime John writes that there's a sign, then you understand that this is a picture. Anytime he doesn't say it's a sign, you understand that's exactly what's going to happen. You take Revelation in its plain literal sense unless John tells you otherwise. And in Revelation 12, he tells us otherwise. He's painting a picture. A great sign that appears in the heavens and the woman is Israel and the sign is a panorama of Israel. So who's the child? It's not the church. It's Jesus. Jesus is the child. 
as the Jewish prophet wrote to a Jewish people of a Jewish Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Revelation 12 verse 3 continuing says another sign appeared in heaven. Behold a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and on his heads were seven diadems and his tail swept away a third of the stars before heaven and threw them to earth and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth he might devour her child who's the dragon? Satan is, the devil is, and the Bible tells us that. John, in the very same chapter, points out that the the old dragon, Satan, so we know who the dragon is here. Follow the sign through and understand that a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under, under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars, Israel, was with child, and she cried out being in labor and in pain, gave birth, And what happened at the birth of Jesus? The dragon went berserk. Matthew 2, verse 16, When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became enraged, he sent, and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all his vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which had been determined from the Magi. That's another story for another time. And then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Jeremiah 31.15 A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. The sign. The woman is with child. Israel. Jesus' birth of Israel. The woman. Israel. The child. Jesus. The dragon. Satan. By the way, it's interesting, just below the ecliptic constellation of Virgo sits the mythological Hydra, which is a seven-headed serpent. Now listen. While the constellations on September 23rd are intriguing, you also need to know there was another time that a similar alignment of stars appeared that I believe, I think, is more intriguing. Especially where Revelation 12 is concerned. When was that? Listen, the picture is this. A woman completely clothed with the sun. In fact, at this particular time when this was seen in the skies or could have been seen in the skies, the sun was right at the heart of Virgo. So Virgo was completely clothed with the sun. And 12 stars did appear above Virgo's head. 12 stars of the constellation Coma Berenices. Resting right there, directly above the head of Virgo, 12 stars that make up that little constellation. By the way, the A star of Coma is called Diadem. And Coma itself means desired one. Haggai chapter 2 verse 7, The desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. When was that pattern in Virgo with the crown of the twelve stars and this moon at the feet and the sun covering the entirety of Virgo. When did that take place? On Tishri the first, Yom Teruah, 3 BC. Which many believe to be the, ta- the actual date of the birth of Jesus. Merry Christmas. But again I say, hey, listen, without or with the stars to guide us, we know that the Word does. 
Revelation 12 is about Israel and it is about Messiah. And if you skip down and look at verse 5, and she gave birth to a son, a male, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Psalm 2, verse 9, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. The male child who rules the world with a rod of iron is not the church, but is Jesus Christ. No question. And her child was caught up to God and to His throne. Look at verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. So after Jesus ascended, did Mary flee to the wilderness? And was she nourished there for three and a half years? No, suddenly now we are at the midpoint of the tribulation in verse 6. Now, you may be reading this and go, okay, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. How do we go from Jesus being born, we see the wrath, we see Satan, and we see you know Herod trying to have all the male babies killed, I understand that. And we go from that, and then all of a sudden, then we leap to Jesus being caught up, you know, being His ascension, so 30 years later, okay, I can track with that. But then all of a sudden, verse 6, you're saying, What? When is that? That Israel is fleeing into the wilderness? That is halfway through the tribulation. Okay, but there's a huge gap between verse 5 and verse 6. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. I would submit to you that there's about a 2,000 year gap. Because in this time, God's clock has stopped. Because the prophecies have to do with Israel. This is the church age. We are in the gap right now between verse 5 and verse 6. The child was caught up to God and to the throne. Caught up is the word harpazo. Jesus was raptured. We talked about this recently. Now, His rapture won't be like ours. Ours is a twinkling of an eye. His rapture was slow enough that the apostles watched Him go and stood there drooling and, and looking up into the clouds as the angels said, what are you looking up at the sky for? I wonder if the angels would say the same thing to Christians today. What are you standing here looking up in the sky for? He's going to come the same way you saw him go. He's coming back. You can trust that. You can believe in that. That the child was caught up into the clouds. He was raptured exactly as the prophecy states. The ascension of Jesus. Now let me give you this kind of final thought. Jesus is the focal point of the Revelation 12 prophecy. That's the whole point. He is the point. In fact, Revelation 19.10 tells us the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All prophecy. If it's not about Jesus Christ Himself, then we're missing something. Then we're confused. Revelation 12 is not about what's about to happen to the church. I'm not saying that the church isn't about to be raptured. Make no mistake about it. We may very well be about to be raptured, but this prophecy is about Jesus. It is not about you and me. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Okay, let's, let's end where we began. Go back now to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and let's begin our study for the morning. <laughs> By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. 
He who was revealed in the flesh, that's the incarnation of Jesus Christ, was vindicated in the Spirit, that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the vindication who was seen by angels, the declaration of Jesus Christ, and proclaimed among the nations the proclamation of Jesus Christ, believed on in the world by every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then finally, taken up in glory, that is the ascension of Jesus. That's the mystery of godliness. This, we believe, is a a chorus of an early church hymn. And if you're looking at the six lines of the chorus there, what's interesting is it's, it's chiasmic in nature, which simply means that the first line and the sixth line are related, and the second line and the fifth line are related, and then the third line and the fourth line are related. So if you read it that way, he was revealed in the flesh and he was taken up in glory. He was vindicated in the spirit and believed on in the world. He was seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations. So it's, it's a chiasm. That's how they look at that. But understand this, and we shared this on Wednesday night. You all got to get this. He doesn't say by common confession, great is the mystery of God. Which is always how I've interpreted this. Because it describes Jesus, God made flesh. So it's the mystery of God in Jesus Christ revealed, right? He doesn't say that. He says great is the mystery of godliness. Which is what? Godliness is Christ in you. Christ in you, which Paul calls in Colossians 1.27, the hope of glory. You see, Jesus gives a hope that does not disappoint. His hope never disappoints. Don't put your hope in the Moedim. Don't put your hope in the Maserot. Put your hope in the Messiah. And you will never be disappointed. Amen? Let's stand up together.